Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are in the book of John, and today we are looking at chapter two, and the episode is entitled Wedding Water Wine. My primary goal today is for you to experience this story in John chapter 2 as the author intended his audience to hear it. Now, I believe the best way to do that is to break up this teaching into four distinct parts. The first part, we're going to talk about some context around the gospel of John. The second part, we're going to tell the story of John 2 and read verses 1 to 11. The third part of this podcast will be three points that John makes in this story and that I believe he wanted his audience to take away from this story. And the fourth and final part of this story will be three observations that I have about what happens in John chapter two and the points that John, the author, was trying to make. So let's begin with some context around the gospel of John. Sometime around the year zero, Jesus Christ was born to two peasants from Nazareth. Thirty years later, he was crucified by the Roman Empire, and then some say he rose from the dead. About 45 years later, sometime around the year 75 CE, a man named Mark sat down to write the story of Jesus. These writings would later become Mark's gospel, and they are the earliest record we have of the life and teachings of Jesus. About 15 years after Mark's gospel was written, Matthew and Luke sat down to write their own gospel accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, while Matthew and Luke did not collaborate to write their gospels, they both most likely used Mark's gospel as a template and therefore are heavily influenced by Mark's account of the life of Jesus. About 15 years later, sometime around the year 105 CE, John sat down to write his gospel about the life and teachings of Jesus. The first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referred to as the synoptic gospels. John writes a very different take on the life of Jesus. And it's almost like he's looking back some seven to eight decades after Jesus Christ was crucified and thinking to himself, you know what this story needs? Is some poetry. John is much more concerned with allegories and poetry and metaphor than he is with historical accuracy. In our modern society, the quick reaction upon hearing these words is to dismiss John's gospel or to value it less than the synoptic gospels because historical accuracy is less of a priority. I don't think that's really fair because John lived by a very different set of standards and in a very different culture than we live in today. John wanted to tell the whole story with more metaphor than facts in an effort to bring Jesus to life for the reader. This is an important distinction to make because I believe that John chapter 2 is an allegory. Now, an allegory is a story, a poem, or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, typically a moral or political meaning. And when we look at John's gospel in particular, the whole story of Jesus is built around seven miracles or seven signs that Jesus does. 
And I will tell you that when I've read John's gospel, I have found it helpful to look at the miracles that John records as allegories instead of historical events. This allows me to place a much stronger emphasis on the symbolism that I believe John intentionally left in the story to get what John is really trying to convey to the reader. So today we're going to look at the first of the seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and it is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. We read these words, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. At this point, I would like to ask you, the listener, what comes to your mind when I say the word wedding? Because what so many Christians often forget is that Jesus was not devoid or absent of culture. Jesus did not grow up and live in a vacuum. We must remember that Jesus was Jewish. And Jesus went to Jewish weddings. Not American Christian weddings, Jewish weddings. In his commentary on the book of John, William Barclay tells us that Jewish weddings around the time of Jesus involved a few elements. Specifically, this wedding was most likely on a Wednesday as the sun was beginning to set. Now, the couple at this wedding that Jesus attended most likely got married underneath a bedsheet that was called the Hapa. The Hapa was a symbol of God's presence hovering over the couple in a similar fashion to how God's presence hovered over the waters in the Genesis story. Now, upon completion of the marriage, immediately the wedding party would then lead a processional from the wedding site to the couple's new home. And as they led this couple home, they would take the huppa and they would hold it over the couple as they went through the streets and pronounced that this couple had in fact been married. This wedding processional did not take the most efficient or shortest route from the wedding site to the couple's new home. Oh, no, 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 no. They went the longest way possible in an effort to let the whole town know that this couple was now official. This is the equivalent of updating your Facebook status today. These are just a few specific examples of how a wedding that Jesus went to was different than the weddings that you and I go to today. But it's important to remember that Jesus was Jewish and Jesus was at a Jewish wedding in this story. Verse 3 reads this, When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now what comes to mind when I say the word wine. There are several Christian denominations within America today who believe that drinking alcohol is a sin. I grew up in one of those traditions, and I will tell you that every time I heard a sermon preached in my tradition or was taught this story in class in my tradition, I was repeatedly told over and over again that this wine and all of the wine that is subsequently mentioned is ultimately non-alcoholic wine. But when we insert this distinction into the text, I ultimately believe that we deny the Jewishness of Jesus. There was a common rabbinical saying during the life of Jesus, according to William Barclay once again, and the common rabbinical saying was this, without wine, there is no joy. 
So we read in verse 3 that Jesus was at a Jewish wedding and there was wine at this wedding until it gave out. Mary goes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her in verse 4, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I will tell you, I have never referred to my mother as woman. It's a bit jarring to read this in 2020, isn't it? But we have to remember that John is not concerned with getting every word that every person said right. John is much more concerned with allegory and metaphor. And if you read this verse by itself, it is off-putting for Jesus to refer to his mother as woman. But when you read the entire Gospel of John, almost every time Jesus speaks to women he meets throughout the story, Jesus addresses them as woman. I believe what John is doing here is he's actively trying to engage female readers of his story. And John is telling us that God doesn't just speak to men anymore. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth and addressed women directly. And that women do not need a man to tell them what God said to them. So verse 4 reads, And Jesus said to his mother, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. According to this story, Jesus makes the good wine. Verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And that is the end of the story of Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John. Most people I know that read or hear this story respond with three words. Cool story, bro. We say these words because we often just write this story off as like a party trick. It would be really fun to bring Jesus with you to a party and impress your friends by having Jesus turn water into wine, But there's not like a whole big meaning behind this story, right? This isn't a story that challenges the empire. This isn't a story that challenges the status quo. This isn't a story that challenges our own belief system. It's just about how Jesus went to a party, the wine ran out, and Jesus said, "Uh, here's some water, let's turn it into wine. And that was the first story. And apparently his disciples began to believe because of it. We like to reduce this story 
to a miracle story. But I believe that John wanted you to hear this story as something else entirely. And I believe this because John makes three rather stunning points in his story. And to get at those three different points, I'm just going to ask three different questions. The first question I need to ask is, how many jars were filled with water in this story? The answer is six. Now, what does the number six represent in Jewish theology? Well, we immediately think of the six days of creation. And so what John wants us to think about when we hear the number six is the six days of creation. Now, it's here that someone could object to this idea and say, Craig, that seems ridiculous. How do we know there just weren't six jars at the party and John is just recording a fact? Do you really think that John wants us to think of the six days of creation when we read his gospel and hear the number six? Now, if John could hear that question, I believe he would respond by saying, seriously? And the reason for that is if you go back to the very first words of John's gospel, John 1.1 reads, in the beginning. It's almost like John is asking, how much more obvious can I be? I want you to think about Genesis 1 the entire time you are reading this book. So when John points out that there's six stone water jars and he begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning, he's asking you, he's begging you to think of the six days of creation. The number six represents the entirety of the material world. But the number six also represents an incompleteness or even an emptiness. When we see the stone jars in the story of Jesus turning water into wine, note that the jars are empty. But the number seven represents something else, doesn't it? After all, the seventh day is when God created the Sabbath. But what's different about the Sabbath from the other six days of creation is that the Sabbath is immaterial. I mean, think about when you search for any of the other things that are created on the six days of creation, birds or rocks or trees or water or sky or fish or animals. You can see pictures of those on Google very easily, but the minute you search for Sabbath on Google Images, well, you get a lot of pictures of sunsets. And who knows if those sunsets were actually taken on a Friday or Saturday evening, they could have been taken on a Tuesday, right? The number seven represents a completeness and the material world becomes complete with the inclusion of the immaterial. There are those who say that the Sabbath is all about rest, but I think that is a short change of what the Sabbath actually is. Because on the seventh day, with nothing more to give, after God has created all the material and all of the physical reality of the earth, God then at that moment gives God's self. And for six days, we work to create things. We work to make the world a better place. But on the seventh day, we stop, we pause, and we savor the goodness of the presence of God as expressed through the material world. 
This creation story is unbelievably exciting because it tells us that all of creation exists so that we might be in communion with God. This creation story is revolutionary because I don't know about you, but when I listen to or read the news today, I get a bit discouraged. And what the creation story tells me is that for six days, I need to actively work to make this world a better place, to change it for the better, to fight against injustice. But the creation story doesn't stop there because the creation story says, Craig, spend six days trying to make this world better, but always remember to stop for one day and remind yourself what is good about being alive. Spend time with your family. Recognize that the world moves on without you. And enjoy the gift of this existence that God has given to you. All of this happens in the creation story when we move from the number six to the number seven. So with that in mind, we return to the story in John 2 where there are six empty water jars and Jesus says, fill those jars to the brim with water. Now this water is nothing like the stone jars that hold the water, right? But it is the combination of the water with the jars that creates something new. In the same way that the Sabbath gives meaning to all of creation, the wine gives meaning to the jars in the story in John 2. Wine is the Sabbath in this story. And much like wine is supposed to be enjoyed, the Sabbath, therefore, is meant to be enjoyed as well. And when we think about the Sabbath representing God's presence in the creation story, what this ultimately means is that God's presence is meant to be enjoyed. John wants his readers to draw a parallel between the Sabbath and the wine. That's what I believe is the first point that John is trying to make in this story. Which brings us to the second point that John is making in this story. And to get to this second point, I have to ask another question. How many gallons did these jars hold? The answer is 20 to 30 gallons. Let's average that out to 25 gallons per jar, shall we? There were six jars, which mean that Jesus made 150 gallons of wine. Now, most bottles of wine are about one-fifth of a gallon, which means that Jesus at this party made 750 bottles of wine in this miracle. 750! <laughs> this is the second point that John is trying to make. John wants you to know that Jesus made a ridiculous amount of wine. Imagine if there's a hundred people at this wedding, then Jesus made seven and a half bottles per person. Have you ever been to a kegger? Jesus makes that look like it was nothing. Jesus throws deca keggers, right? <laughs> I mean, this is so much wine that it makes the most liberal person say, well, maybe that's a bit too much. <laughs> right? And it feels irresponsible to have this much alcohol. It feels almost like it's enabling 
when you have 750 bottles of wine at one wedding, right? Now, why does John want you to know that Jesus made a ridiculous amount of wine? I believe the answer is that Jesus was Jewish. And in Jewish theology, there is this understanding of equating God's presence with an abundance of wine. To give you three examples from Scripture, there are three different prophets who believe that whenever the day of the Lord or the age of the Messiah would begin, there would also be an abundance of wine. In Joel chapter 3, he writes, So you shall know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy mountain. On that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. Another prophet, Amos, wrote in chapter 9, The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps, and the treader of grapes, the one who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Isaiah wrote in chapter 25 of his prophecy, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-matured wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-matured wines strained clear. John wants you to know that Jesus made a ridiculous amount of wine. And the reason for that is that the presence of God in John's theology and John's culture was associated with an abundance of wine. Which brings us to the third point that John makes in this story. And we can get to the third point by asking the question, why were these jars at this wedding? The answer is that these jars were at this wedding for purification rites. Now you have to remember that this story is written long before the introduction of germ theory. And what would happen is that people would go to these weddings with these stone jars and they would wash their hands before the meal, not to prevent germs from getting on their food, but so that their hands may go from being religiously unclean to religiously clean. Now, the way that they would wash their hands is they would go one at a time. They would go up to these jars. They would take a ladle and put their hand up in the air and drop water from the fingertips down to the wrist, then invert their hand and then take another ladle and drop the water from their wrist down to their fingertips. They would switch hands and then put both hands into the water, ball up a fist and wash the palm of the other hand and then do vice versa. Now, most people living in Jesus' day did this once before the meal. But those that sought to be the most religious would do this between every course of the meal. And as you can imagine, they made a very big show of it. They wanted the people at the table to know that they were more devoted to the religion than the common washers who would wash only just once. So you can see that in this story, these jars represent the religious rules. Not only that, but the jars are made of stone, which would immediately make people think of the Ten Commandments where God wrote the ten most important rules in stone 
and how those stones were then carried down from Mount Sinai by Moses. So these jars represent all of the rules and laws that are in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and so much more, and they are at the party, but they are minor players in this story, aren't they? John wants you to see the insignificance of the law, of the religious rules compared to the transcendence of an encounter with God. Sure, the stone jars are important. Imagine if there are no stone jars in this story. Jesus turns water to wine and it just spills all over the ground. Laws are important for social order, but they are not the point. In this story, the laws are reduced to mere containers. And while the jars have a role to play, they are not the point of the story, not even by a long shot. John makes three points in this story. The wine is the Sabbath. Jesus makes a ridiculous amount of alcohol. And the religious law is insignificant compared to the transcendence of an encounter with God. Which brings us to three observations I would like to share with you about the story. The first observation revolves around the miraculous nature of this story. Now, there are some miracles in the Bible that we have a really hard time believing. But I have to confess that for me, this one isn't really hard to believe. In fact, I believe it wholeheartedly that Jesus turned water into wine. And the reason I can believe this miracle with such little effort is because I have seen it happen. I have seen people turn water into wine. All it takes is a trip to the Napa Valley where my mother-in-law lives, and the whole town is built around this miracle of transforming water into what some would call the bottled poetry of wine. Now, obviously, the timelines are different between John 2 and Yountville, California. I totally get that, right? But ultimately, this idea that you take water and soil and grapes and all of these different elements and bring them together to mean something to someone who drinks it, well, isn't that kind of miraculous? I mean, there are people living today who take all of these different elements and ingredients and make it mean something. This is a transformation that is rather miraculous, isn't it? And when we talk about transformation, we are getting at the heart of what John's gospel is all about. The thesis statement of John's gospel is found in chapter 1 when he writes about what it meant for Jesus to live among us. His words are, and the word became flesh and lived among us. How that thesis statement plays out in chapter 2 is John is saying, and the water became wine, and it was delicious. John's testimony is that Jesus came to this earth to help us transcend the rules of religion so that we might thoroughly enjoy living in an abundance of love. John is trying to get us away from this idea that if I follow more rules than someone else, then I must be more religious than them. John wants us to move the emphasis of our spirituality from rule keeping 
to inner experience of God, to inner transformation. And in this first miracle of Jesus, that transformation is represented when water becomes wine. The first observation I want to make about this story is that the wine is the point. Water does not just remain as water. There is transformation there. And the minute that you reduce this wine to something less than wine, you have lessened the transformation that is at the heart of what John is trying to get at. The wine is the point. The second observation that I would like to make about this story requires us to go back to who I used to be. Because if I would have heard this podcast 10 years ago, throughout this entire teaching, I would have been thinking one thing. I need to know where the pastor stands. Is drinking alcohol a sin? Like I would have ignored all of the other pieces and zeroed in on that question. And I would be listening and thinking to myself, I sure hope he answers whether or not alcohol consumption is a sin. And the answer to that question is rather obvious. Well, sometimes drinking alcohol is a sin, and sometimes it isn't. We all know several people who drink alcohol responsibly and they enjoy it. There's nothing sinful about this behavior. But at the same time, we all know at least one person who suffers from severe alcohol abuse. This person's families have suffered greatly due to this person's choices. Of course, that alcohol abuse is a sin. So we spend all sorts of time and hours and weeks and months debating whether or not drinking alcohol is a sin, and we miss the entire point of this story. Because what the story is, is about how religious laws are mere containers compared to the transcendence of an encounter with God. So when we respond to this story by looking at the wine that Jesus creates and asking ourselves, well, is it non-alcoholic wine? What we're doing is we're going back to that question of what laws make us pure or make us clean and which laws make us unclean. As soon as we fixate on the idea and the question about drinking alcohol and whether or not it's a sin, we take this remarkable, miraculous story about Jesus turning water into wine and we turn the wine back into water. It's like we go to a party where Jesus turns water into wine and pours that wine into stone containers and all we can talk about are the stone containers. It's like when John tells us the word became flesh and lived among us, we respond by saying, let's take the flesh and turn it back into words. The second observation I'd like to make about this story is that the wine isn't the point. Transformation is the point of this story. And if you've noticed, my first observation is the wine is the point well, now you know why we call this the Paradox Podcast. The whole metaphor behind this story 
is that inner transformation and experience with God is what matters, not religious laws. Which brings us to the third observation I'd like to make about this story. And this point revolves around the life of Jesus. Now, Christians don't follow a set of beliefs. We don't follow church buildings. We follow a person who we believe is fully human and fully divine. Which raises the question for Christians everywhere. How do you tell the story of Jesus? Most Christians I know tell the story of Jesus this way. Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for your sins so that you might accept him as your personal savior so that when you stand before God at the end of time in the great judgment, God will look at Jesus's life and record rather than your own and see that Jesus is blameless and you may have eternal life in heaven. If John could hear us telling this story today, I believe that John would ask us a question. Where did you get this idea from? And you would say to John, what idea are you talking about? And he would respond, this judgment at the end of time, where does that come from? And we would say to John, well, it comes from you. And he would say, no, it's nowhere mentioned in my gospel. In fact, Jesus often refuses to judge anyone. Now, there are some studious fans of the Bible who would point to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and say, well, John, you wrote this book, right? This book is filled with judgment and a court scene and God judging our sins before everyone else. And it's here that I believe John would say, I didn't write that. Because throughout church history, dating all the way back to the 3rd century CE, Christians have debated and felt very strongly that John did not write both the Gospel of John and Revelation. Their pictures of Jesus are vastly different. I would encourage every listener of this podcast to read both John and Revelation and tell me, whether they think the same person wrote it because their ideas about who God is are worlds apart. And so I believe that John, the gospel writer, would hear us talking about judgment at the end of time and be very dismissive and say, that's not who God is. Let me tell you who God is. And when someone asks John to tell them the story of Jesus, he opens the story not with a court date that is set with all of humanity, but he tells us that Jesus is at a party making a ridiculous amount of wine, and this wine is exceptional. The third observation I would like to make about this story is that according to John, we are not required to appear in court before God. Instead, God invites us to a party. Now, when we hear of God inviting us to a party, we assume that this party will be filled with scripture reading, prayer, and singing from the hymnal. But John tells us that this party has a copious, abundant amount of wine that is delicious. And there's so much of this wine that it borders on being irresponsible. 
I have never in all of my life heard anyone tell me the story of Jesus inviting us to a party with a ridiculous amount of wine, except for once. And that one time that somebody told us a different picture of God is found at the heart of John's gospel. My brothers and sisters, may we tell the story of Jesus about how God invites us to a party, how the wine is the point and the wine isn't the point. And may we experience that transformation of word becoming flesh, of water becoming wine, of enjoying the presence of God here on earth. May we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.